The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Financial fallout from Western sanctions on Russia over Ukraine did not lead to a Lehman-like collapse in global financial markets. But as our columnists say this week, there are still plenty of unknowns to fret about. This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv, a London stock exchange group business. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters News, coming to you from Rome. It's certainly a cliche, but this has been a week in which decades happen all at once. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the severe financial sanctions the West unveiled to punish and perhaps try to convince President Vladimir Putin to back down sent global debt, equity, and currency markets on edge. So far, it did not tip the financial world into a Lehman-like collapse, but there's still many things we don't yet understand from the impact on banks the impact on investors, what happens in energy markets, the political responses in capitals like Beijing. And that's all before considering what Putin himself might do militarily in response. Hear what our columnists have to say. Well, it's lunchtime in Europe on Wednesday, and it's been a pretty momentous week. So I'm really glad to have the three of you guys uh, on this call. You have all three kind of led our coverage from the EMEA region on the Russia-Ukraine financial fallout in particular. Uh, but maybe let's step back. You know, I, I, I'm Peter, you know, I remember Sunday night, you and I chatted, we did a couple of stories, and I was thinking to myself, is this going to be like Lehman Monday, you know, are we going to see a response to all of these extraordinary uh, sanctions on Russian financial markets, Russian investors, Russian billionaires, and the Russian government? Are we going to see some sort of huge fallout on Monday? That doesn't seem to have been the case. There has been a lot of, it's been a rough week in the markets, but it, it wasn't a Lehman Monday. What, what, what's your read on the situation? Well, I I'm old enough to remember the Lehman Monday, and I think it's fair to say that the Lehman Monday wasn't really a, like a disaster Monday either. You know, if you recall, Lehman failed on the Sunday, and then the next day, some people were like, oh, yeah, the Fed did the right thing, letting Lehman fail, and, you know, kind of it's putting some moral hazard back in the system and stuff. And it actually took a week or longer for, for, the, for the repercussions and the knock-on effects of letting Lehman collapse ripple through the financial system. So oh, you've completely punctured my optimism here. <laughs> well, I don't With know. With your great memory. I was around there too. I just don't remember. I can't, I just sort of, I sort of all put it all together. But you're right. There was this sort of slow burn, the rehypothecation and all these kinds of things where you find exactly. assets trapped and markets then started to, to react and really react over the following weeks. Is that, are you, do you think we're in that situation I, now? I don't know, but I think we could be. I mean, I think, to be clear, I mean, I think it's different in the sense that the, the, the big difference is that when Lehman failed, the consequence was that people looked at every other, the, the senior debt of every other financial institution said, oh, the government's not going to stand behind that. I now have to worry about get, taking a loss on that debt. So, so the repercussions were much bigger. This is one country. Nobody is saying, oh, well, they've, they've sanctioned Russia today. You know, they could be sanctioning China tomorrow. I mean, it's not it's it, it's not that sort of it's not that sort of knock-on effect. But you know, Russia has uh, a lot of you know a lot of external debt, a lot of companies, a lot of it's a big energy supplier, commodity supplier, various other things. People have people hold Russian assets. They hold assets which are mixed in with Russian assets. There are Russian oligarchs who have money's money abroad, some of which has now been frozen. So so there are I think there are second and third order consequences which we're just sort of beginning to see. Oh. So for example. We've seen yeah, we, a load saw, of, we had a 
Yeah, one of the pieces that came out on Wednesday, which I think you edited, might be worth looking at, was about uh, the headline was Russian S Russia Exodus tests fund managers liquidity limit. That sort of that story has elements to me of of a little bit what we saw after the the Lehman and uh, crisis. Now, yeah, exactly, because because essentially what's happened is you have a load of mostly equity funds at this stage, but also some bond funds, which which have some Russia exposure. And, you know, as of last Friday, those equities still had a price. They were trading, you know, they were going down a lot, but you could still buy and sell them and you could sort of mark them to market and you could you could sell them and then you could take your money out of the country. As of Monday and this week, those 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 prices are frozen. You cannot sell your Russian equities and the Russian government is also making it incredibly hard for you to take money out of the country. So you're in a situation where suddenly a whole chunk of assets that were liquid on Friday are now frozen. And if you're in a fund that, you know, offers your where you offer your investors daily liquidity in their fund and they can take their money out, then you have a problem because of the, 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 the investors come and ask for their money back. But you can't sell some of the underlying assets. And people look at that and say, oh, well, that's going to be a problem. I better go and get my money out as quickly as possible. So then you get a run. And then what we've seen with some of these funds is that they then put up gates. And you, know, you can see that sort of effect rippling through the system. Um, and that's just a sort of first order consequence. You know, there are then there's a question about, you know, loans to Russian companies, loans to the Russian government. Are they going to pay their interest? Are they going to default on their debt? All these things are now being worked out. And I, I just think it's a little too early to say, like, the, mark, the global markets have absorbed all this. We don't know for sure yet. Okay, so let's look at it from the Russia perspective. Dasha, you've been writing quite a bit about, about the impact that these uh, sanctions are supposed to have on, well, on the Kremlin and on the people close to uh, President Vladimir Putin. I mean, you wrote a piece about oligarchs and the oligarchs uh, have been targeted and that was our most popular story in the last 24 hours. What's your sense of, of how these sanctions are playing out in the country? Yeah, I mean, I think the oligarch sanctions are big, but in a way they're sort of more symbolic and they're chipping away at what historically has been, in a way, Putin's part of Putin's power base is that these really successful rich people were dependent on him and he was dependent on them. But I think the real, the really big game changer came over the weekend when news broke that the US wanted to sanction the central bank, which holds, which has built up this massive, some people have called it a war chest even when they were worried uh, that invasion, an invasion would happen of more than 630 billion dollars. The belief was that that money could be used to protect Russia, protect Russian businesses, protect the Russian economy against any sanctions. And what the US and other countries have said is actually you can't use any of that money if it's in our currencies, which is the you know the majority of it. And that was, I think that was massive because it kind of takes away, takes away that cushioning. The other thing is slowly but surely some Russian banks, not all of them, but they're being kicked out of SWIFT, which is a big deal because, not because there's absolutely no way to legally make payments into Russia or from Russia. There's always a workaround, I think, but because it completely ruins the sentiment and it makes everybody think twice about dealing with Russia, even in the ways that are potentially deemed legal uh, and it creates this hurry to find workarounds that are going to be more expensive and in effect the risk is that those those things combined 
are massively reducing trade, impacting the Russian economy. In, in response, the Russian central bank more than doubled interest rates to 20%. But of course, that has massive knock-on implications on the real economy. It's going to make life a lot harder for businesses who are really going to struggle to get parts, you know, if they import them. And then there are, there are the consumers, you know, there's all that, that business side and the, the risk of the economy screeching to a halt. And then there's ordinary people no longer being able to get iPhones, no longer being able to get Nike shoes, partly sometimes because companies are still finding workarounds and sort of temporarily figuring out how to how to make their systems compliant. And in some cases, I imagine there's a more permanent shift of companies saying, actually, we can't really we don't really want to take the risk. We're not going to sell in Russia. Uh, and that's. It might seem it might seem mad to be talking about people getting upset that they can't buy iPhones when uh, civilians are being bombed in cities across Ukraine. But people, consumers do notice stuff like that. And that do it, you get a sense? I mean, is there a sense, um, at least in the Russian press or from the, the public opinion, that it that these sanctions will have or are having some sort of effect in in the you know the the average uh, person on the street questioning the wisdom of the war, or uh, even those people very close to the, let's say, the Russian defense machine or the, you know, the, the, the oligarchs themselves putting pressure on the Kremlin. I mean, is there any sense that this is working? I mean, one point to raise is that Russian, the Russian media, or me, even media in Russia, can't actually call it a war. It's called a special operation. Russia has taken TV, TV reign and uh, a radio broadcaster, Echo, off the air, even though that's actually owned by Gazprom, it's still seen as, as independent or semi-critical because they have been a bit more uh, upfront about the risks in this war and what's actually happening and, you know, the, the, the downsides, which, you know, to, to, use a, to use a mild term. So there's that. And it's very difficult to get a sense of how people really feel because I think there's a lot of fear. I think something like 10,000 people and counting across the country have been arrested in when they were protesting the war. So there's a lot of fear and it's very difficult to know if sort of the opinion polls which say that half of the population supports the, the so-called operation because it's against NATO rather, they see it as against NATO rather than against the Ukrainian people. You know, it's, it, we don't know whether to trust that or not. But you can see the, the businessmen getting getting pretty nervous. You even had Deripaska, Oleg Deripaska, who's already sanctioned in the US. Arguably, he's got less to lose in that sense, speaking out and saying, you know, we've got to stop war and fix this thing. And so some some of his comments were quite cryptic. Did he say we have to stop a special occupation or did he say war? Uh, it definitely was a special occupation. I think he might have found a workaround, but it wasn't the, the official Kremlin one. Right. Uh, and you had Mikhail Friedman and Peter Aben, who have just been sanctioned by the European Union, and they held a press conference in London and talked about how they don't want war. And, you know, Friedman has, ha has close ties with Ukraine. I mean, it's difficult to breathe that and, and listen to that press conference and not think that it's largely self-interested because they don't want to get sanctioned in the UK too. But definitely there's some dissent, but it's kind of muted and, and couched in, in these particular terms that, that you know, are, aren't too critical or mostly aren't critical at all of President Vladimir Putin, who's... Well, 
and I would I would also say I mean it looks from the outside like the fact that they're holding press conferences and and writing you know statements on Telegram or or kind of you know issuing open letters you know or in the case of Evgeny Lebedev you know Lord Lebedev putting you know kind of a an article on the front page of his newspaper in the UK the Evening Standard kind of says to me actually. They don't have that much influence with Putin, right? They're sort of making these public appeals rather than what we imagine they might be doing, sort of using back channels to the Kremlin to say, you know, kind of, you need to stop this. And and even more worryingly today, it was the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, also saying things like, you know, third world war would be nuclear and warning against it if, if that needed to be even said, which is also concerning sort of who, who is he speaking for, what influence does he wield, because, you know, he's he's done a lot to get us to this point. Yeah, and he also just uh, was added to the sanctions list himself, which was kind of right. an extraordinary measure. George, you've been looking at the the energy markets, which is a key kind of factor into this whole thing. It's, it is, yeah. uh, after all, it is the way that Russia makes its a huge chunk of its money is through selling energy largely to the European nations. But what's your take of, you, you've done a couple of pieces on this. I mean, there's sort of the the impact on the energy market. I, you, you don't have to say much more than point to the, the, the price of a barrel of crude. But what is your sense that Europe and others are are really going to wean themselves off? And re, I mean, because you've written about the energy transition. Uh, yeah. That was, this is, this is a sort of writ large reason to transition ASAP, no? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's. It's. I suppose the interesting thing about what's happened in the last week is that it's very noticeable. We're talking about sanctions in other areas, but it's very noticeable that um, the sanctions that were designed by the US and Europe and the UK have, have uh, are explicitly designed to keep the energy supplies flowing and the oil and gas flowing. And that's the fairly obvious point behind that in that we. Europe in particular is desperately reliant on Russian gas. But what's been interesting is you've seen um, there's a certain amount of self-sanctioning going on by the market. There's an, um, big players like BP have obviously pulled out of, of of Russia, but more specifically on a day-to-day basis, you're, you're seeing traders reluctant to kind of engage with Russian oil and um, and buy it, and um, that's kind of having a, a reality of its uh, on its own, on its own, and that's going to have an impact on prices, and that price that impact is going to be, have to be managed. The, the the point that you're making there about the uh, how do we wean ourselves off Russian oil is a much more longer term issue, and I kind of looked into some of the numbers and the kind <laughs> the kind of change that would be needed. Probably you'd probably have to take at least ten years to actually do it and you know it, there's no kind of there's, there's no rocket science behind it you have to kind of do a lot more renewables you probably have to go out of nuclear um a bit slower and you have to kind of get all sorts of liquefied national uh, natural gas imports from around the world and kind of get them flowing to europe but it, the, the reality is it would you know it's possible but it's not something you can do like you know this year or even next You've actually done some of the calculations on this. What's your what's your sense, George, of what you know how the European Union can do this? Well, very very broadly, it's the uh, European Union uses 500 billion cubic meters of uh, gas every year, and about a third, between a third and a 40 percent of that is um, is comes from Russia and Russian pipelines. And basically, it's <laughs> the, the the maths that we were looking at was just kind of if you if you reduce that basically around 150 billion cubic meters if you reduce that by 
ten percent every year. Where do you uh, how do you um, how do you fill that gap? And it's 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 possible to do because the the scale of um, renewables, windows and solar new installations and additions that are being added to the European grid over the next um, 10 years. It, it's possible to do that, but you, you you do also need other things such as liquefied natural gas imports, and you do need to kind of get out of nuclear a bit slower. And all these things are not actually very easy to do because the, some of them are politically contentious, some of them are driven by market forces. But unfortunately, I think what's what's really what's really happening at the moment is that European politicians in particular will be realising that even if it's a really hard thing to do, they really do need to wean themselves off Russian gas because we don't want this kind of thing happening again. Well, so they go into Saudi Arabian oil. It's the other, you know, I mean, this is a sort of problem with hydrocarbons in general, I suppose. Yeah, which is another reason why you um, want to get out of the, get out of all of them, ideally. Yeah. Now, Peter, just to wrap it up, I mean, it's been a heck of a week. I mean, just a slightly less financial perspective, but you know, we saw two extraordinary things happen. No, we saw Germany effectively, I don't want to say Germany rearming, make it sound like some weird historical antecedent, but you know, certainly Germany deciding, we had a piece on this, uh, which maybe you can talk about, uh, to increase its, its spending as a percentage of GDP on defense. And then we had other, other stories, of course, Switzerland effectively giving up its, its neutrality in the matter. Yeah, well, it's been, you know, and the cliche is it's sort of been one of those weeks in which decades happen uh, all at once and, and sort of sacred cows left, right and centre get slaughtered. I mean, the German thing was extraordinary. The Chancellor, German Chancellor, new German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, just getting up and announcing on a Sunday that they were going to increase their defence spending to at least 2% of GDP and put 100 billion euros into the military. I mean, you know, something that people have been asking them to do for years and, and they haven't done. I mean, I think it, it's a, obviously a very significant move and, you know, a sign of, of kind of how the, the tectonic plates are, are shifting. And the Swiss, you know, again, the Swiss sort of basically getting up and saying, uh, unlike the UK, but by, by, by the way, uh, getting up and saying whatever the EU does with, uh, with sanctions on oligarchs, we'll adopt them word for word, or sanctions on Russia sanctions on oligarchs will adopt them word for word, which is given the way Switzerland has historically been a sort of seen as a safe haven for people is is significant. Now, I have to say, I mean, Switzerland has introduced sanctions in the past, but they but but it's what's unusual is for them to say whatever the EU does will do exactly the same thing. And it just I think it shows you in the, the big picture, I think it shows you is that is someone at the beginning of this described it as a, a moment of clarity, you know, sort of things that have been swirling around for a while sort of suddenly become very clear. And, and there is definitely a, a realignment or maybe even a re-realignment, you know, sort of back to the transatlantic alliance, the importance of the European Union, not just as, a, as, a, as an economic entity, but also as a sort of political entity and, a, and a, a force against possible Russian expansion. And, you know, I think it will take a long time for us to see the consequences of all these shifts. But I think there's a lot that's happened this week that we will point back to and say, that was the moment when it started. Yeah. Well, look, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Dasha and George. You guys have been working extraordinarily hard this week. And I wish I could tell you that I thought next week was going to be a lot easier. Uh, but keep up the good work. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, everybody. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong, and I'm chatting with Chen Yawen, our, our China columnist. 
And we're talking about something we've been writing a lot about, which is um, the, the war in Ukraine. And quite specifically, where China is in this conflict, for those unaware, obviously, um, China abstained from the UN national security vote on the, uh, on the invasion. Um, Chinese diplomats have do not use the word invasion, and uh, they haven't they've been trying to establish a kind of a sort of middle stand. But Yawan, can you just lay out for, for us, like what exactly is China's position so far? What is the government saying? I think Beijing has quite a tightrope to walk, both economically and politically. Um, that's why we're seeing China taking a very relatively neutral stance, like it's calling for peace. Um, it held calls with Putin and several other high-level diplomats. Um, it, it has uh, held a call with the Ukrainian side as well. But I think the interesting dynamic here is that China relies a lot of the Russian oil, among other commodities. So it, it has it has put China kind of in the back foot in the sense that it's, it's a vital um, source of their energy supply. So last year, Russia basically accounts for nearly one-fifth of China's oil imports. China's the world's largest oil importer. It doesn't produce enough domestically, so it's, it's very important to them. Um, it also ran a 12 billion trade deficit. It just speaks volume how important Russia is as a partner. And at the same time, I think Russia also supplies a lot of gas to China via various pipelines. There was a new pipeline. And I think just last month, Russia just pledged to uh, sign a new 30-year contract with China. It's it's hard, especially because China has made such a point of its its ideological position that that sovereignty is paramount. You know that basically in territorial integrity is is paramount. And it says that the, the diplomats have come out and said that that Ukraine is no exception to this. Yeah. It does seem to me, at least, that there's a possibility that China. You know, a lot of people just. China is trying to find a middle ground that just doesn't exist. I highly doubt, and it doesn't seem from what the diplomats said, that they were expecting Russia to go in the way that it did. Yeah, and I mean, keeping some... in mind that the, the China isn't alone on this. India and I think the United Arab Emirates as well, like not everybody, condemnation is not universal. So there's other people who are trying to straddle this fence for similar reasons, like you point out. But um, it is quite tough. It, it's going to be hard for, for, for Russia to balance it diplomatically. But Pragmatically speaking, you've also got these Western sanctions rolling through. And I know you looked at how that might play out for Chinese banks um, and trade. Yep. Can you talk us through how that's going to work exactly? I mean, China wants to buy stuff from Russia, also wants to buy stuff from Europe and everything else. And how's that, right. how's that likely to play out? So China is, uh, well, it, first of all, it had pr previous experience with sanctions when it comes to Iran and North Korea. So I think Chinese banks has been testing on ways of, I guess, skirting, you know, the, the Western sanctions to minimize bilateral impact for the same reason I said with Russia, oil is very important. The same thing goes for Iran and North Korea. So, and on the other side, I think China wants to promote its own currency, the Chinese yuan. Um, so as the bilateral trade with Russia deepens over the years, it has been quite robustly um, developing this alternative trading or international settling system. One of them is called the PVP. It's a foreign exchange system for simultaneously settling yuan and, uh, and the Russian ruble um, transactions. And it also has a 
somewhat an answer to SWIFT, the international financial messaging system that's widely used around the world. So China's um, answer is called the cross-border interbank payment system, which is SIPIS. It's, I think its transaction volume has risen quite significantly over the years, but compared to China's other global transactions in other currencies, it's still quite small. And I think one of the problems, as you mentioned, is the Chinese banks that's kind of caught in the, in the middle because, um, for example, ICBC, China's largest bank and the world's largest actually by assets, they um, are they are also one of the major clearance Chinese bank for the yuan trades in Russia, but they heavily relies on SWIFT for not only the Russian trades, but um, you know internationally they have branches and they have to deal with other countries' um, trading partners as well. So there are already reports saying they are they have suspended the issuance of the export credit letters denominating in dollars. So it's it's basically a sign that they're complying with Western sanctions already. I mean, there's a lot of takes out there about how this is going to push the internationalization of the RMB and like, well, they'll use the digital yen or whatever, which is another sort of way to circumvent SWIFT. Yeah, I agree with that because I think China has a very different objective from Russia, right? It wants a global influence. It wants the globalization of the yen. It probably doesn't want to undercut the Western sanctions too much. Um, and, you know, by promoting SIPIS at this very sensitive timing, you are on the cutting swift and it, it, it's just a bad look for China and the Chinese banks. Well, let's let's go on to another part. So there's the, the move to freeze the central bank's assets, um, Russian central bank's assets, which is really, I mean, what, what Europe and the United States are trying to do to Russia is really quite unprecedented. They're just trying to completely freeze this economy, um, apart from the oil sector, the energy sector. I mean, they're just incredibly radical moves. And uh, going after freezing a central bank's assets is is just <laughs> really startling because it's just not usually done. I think there's laws against it, might be against international law. I'm not an expert on it, but I know that it's, it's just been kind of out of bounds for so long. And now you've got China, 3.2 trillion U.S. dollars worth of hard currency. A lot of that is in U.S. Treasuries and stuff like that. Looking at this step and saying, "Okay, <laughs> what if they go after us next?" The counter argument, I guess, is that China is so important that it owns so many treasuries that it does so much trade with the United States and all its critics that, it, unlike with, with Russia, where Russia is just kind of a giant gas station for the West, uh, China is is provides everything. Yeah, you're that right. It would just, I think that's that it's just impossible. You could never do it. Do you think that that the PBOC really needs to hurry up and internationalize the yen like they keep on talking and not doing about or, you know, would involve incredible changes given the way that China runs a trade surplus? Or can they just kind of, you know, rely on their, their economic heft to insulate them? I think that this, this just highlights again that it's, it's such a slippery tightrope for them, right? I don't think there's any uh, indication that the West is going after China yet, unless I guess China violates the sanctions on Russia or, you know, draws further criticism from them on that front. So I, th I think that's what the policymakers in China are trying to avoid right now. No, and I, I'm they, sorry. Just to be clear, like what the speculation is about is specifically like, say, China goes after Taiwan, which a lot of people are thinking is like the next thing, the next shoe to drop, right? First Ukraine, 
I don't agree with this take, but that it just sort of clears the way for, for China to go and, and roll over Taipei. Um, and then yeah, the central bank I, would have to worry about this sort of thing. I felt that's kind of a, quite a stretch argument at this point. My personal opinion is actually this Russian invasion will put China off for some time if they had immediate, even if they had immediate plans, because it's just so much he headache right now. And even though China is much more financially powerful and it's so much more intertwined with the world economy and everything, I don't think its foreign policy has been so competitive. And yeah, it has projected this image of peace, uh, you know, interna internationalization, you know, it wants to ally with the UN and everything. So I don't know, I think they're probably running stress tests and everything, but I, I just, I can't see it materializing, you know, soon. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's such this huge buyer of treasuries and such a player in the market. I mean, if the United States were to do it, it would just be, I mean, you might as well just be at war already. because So uh, but just related to that, um, I think it's actually quite interesting um, when we look at the Vien, the rising share of Vien assets in Russia, though, because we're looking at the data and Russia had 0.1% of its foreign Forex in Chinese Vien assets in 2015. And now it holds like 13% of it. So, so that that kind of like also you know as, as the West ramps up pressure and probably will cut Russia somewhat to the dollar excess. I think that will just continue to drop. So it, it begs the question of what what China do in this position as well. You know, will will it help China? Will it help um, Russia further with you know more Chinese yuan support to its you know ex to its exports is that that's unable to be sent anywhere else. And I think that is probably gonna happen somehow, but like we discussed before, I think will come with considerable um, risk for China to want to avoid drawing the sanction attention to itself. What do you think this does for China's position on balance if you count for everything? I mean, obviously it's now associated with, with Russia kind of going and rolling over a smaller country, which is not a good look you know, it looks kind of hypocritical when it talks about sovereignty and territorial integrity and can't stand up for Ukraine on this one. And then there's this theory that like, you know, by going this route, Russia has weakened itself. And that, you know, Russia was always the big historical, well, not always, but for a substantial part of recent modern history, Russia was the big enemy of China, not more than the United States. These are armies that, that actually shot at each other at some point. Yeah, and there's a theory that basically Russia is going to end up being much more subordinate, much more dependent on China going forward. Um, and then on balance, that that's a that's a win to have this energy supplier, you know, and this erstwhile competitor be weak in itself like this. What's your take? Um, I think it's it's true in the near term, but yeah, in the longer term, it's it's a problem if, like you said, Russia collapses or there's a lot of political instability there as well, which will I, I suppose impedes on the oil trade production as well. And I was just looking at Russia's trading oil trading partners. One interesting thing is also that China's other top supplier is Saudi Arabia, which also grabs us pretty much 15% share of China's total imports. And Saudi Arabia is a key American ally to my knowledge. So I think just for energy on the energy front, China is kind of in a very difficult position, which probably reinforced the case for for it to go through a green transition. So I 
I think it's, yeah, I, I feel like China's solution right now is probably just trying to wait it out. <laughs> and if this becomes a protracted war and the UN issues a condemnation letter and there's more, you know, united effort globally condemning Russia, then it might be pushing to a corner. Oh, well, it's interesting about China having to accelerate its green plans. Russia is part of that too, right? Because they have all this gas um, that is going to be part of changing its oil, its coal intense energy mix. But anyways, I think that's all the time we've got. Thanks for chatting with me, Yohan. Thanks for having me. Thanks to our producers, Thomas Schumann, Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong, and to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you go to get high-quality podcasts. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Thank you.